0: Section 7 of Through Broadland in a Braden Punt by John Nolittle. A pseudonym of the writer and naturalist Arthur Henry Patterson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapters 13 and 14. Chapter 13. The Monk of St. Bennet's. The Enjoyment of Lone Travel is intensified by voyaging in a canoe, for this isolates more completely than any other mode. The want of a companion is never felt, because each moment has engagement. Searching the way, minding the boat, fishing too. To enjoy it, you must be alone. By MacGregor, from Rob Roy canoe. My restless habit, when afloat, finds me awake betimes, even now in this cosy bungalow bedroom, luxuriously fixed as I am. It is a sort of compromise which the fifth hour of the morning findeth. Half of me, well-rested, is beneath a bright red rug, the other half, at half a right angle, with a pen in my fist. My friends are still sleeping. I am jotting impressions in gay potter before the heat of the day can scorch them. That it is a glorious morning goes without saying. The cool wind is whispering to me through the window kindly. But why does it get hot, "'and so unkindly as the sun woos it. "'Do you think me always merry like the sparrows, "'cheery like the robin? "'I mostly am, but I am only human too. "'Would you believe me if I tell you "'I have had more than one wet eyelid above my scribblings? "'The spirit of my boy who sleeps in that far-off soldier's grave in Albert Cemetery, seems to find me up now and then in my solitude, and the old man gets a wee bit sad. But, cheerio, let's have a smile together, for life is a curious mixture, and only a mysterious providence knows the good that seeming evils may do us. THE WORLD WAGS ON, AND THE NATURALIST, PERFORCE, MUST TAKE A PHILOSOPHIC VIEW OF LIFE. ST. BENNET'S FINE OLD abbey RUINS ARE IN SIGHT, LOOMING UP GRANDLY ON THE WIDESPREAD MARSHES, AND A SMART OLD YACHT, WHOSE NAME I DID NOT CATCH, LAY MOORED BESIDE THE SEDGY MARGIN OF THE RIVER. Friendly greetings were exchanged as the Yarwhelp glided by. A few fathoms further on, and I drew up a while just opposite the ruins, which are beautiful in their slow decay. Some good soul or society has banned the ugly tin fencing of years ago, and substituted for it suitable railings. As I held fast to the sedges a-thinking, there appeared unto me a merry-looking, jolly old Benedictine monk, in cowl and other fittings and fixings, including a fairly straight hazel-rod. "'Well, my friend,' he queried, "'dost thou fish for thy pleasure, or for thy sustenance?' "'I perceive that thou art well acquainted with these parts.' "'More or less,' said I, "'and I am glad to meet you, my friend.' "'I heard him chuckle fatly. "'Thou hast a smooth tongue,' said he, laughing. "'Rather quietly, though, I thought, "'which should stand thee in good stead.' It can be a rasp on occasion, my father, I interjected. No doubt of it, said he, so thou hast not been very successful with thy angle. I, too, am a fisherman thou seest, like those Galileans of old, and fish in good company, as they did. And, so saying, he sat down beside me putting on his hook a worm, which he blessed, and cast into the waters. But even for his blessing, the fishes bit not. "'Father,' said I, "'I thought that Friday was fish-day, "'but today is it not Wednesday?' "'Good fish are excellent any day,' he made reply, "'casting in again.' but we have fish stews up at the abbey on ill days to fall back upon, and which are ever accessible. Why not? I asked. Open up a fried fish. I was about to say shop, thinking what a boon it would be to yachting folk. But he interrupted me. Thou must know, said he, that stews are ponds, Artificial, wherein we turn those fish which we have captured in nets, pikes, carps, tenchers, bream, and others. We have many a bream, and many a loose in stew, and many a fat patriarch, eek in mew and the old fellow chuckled again until the dew-drops trickled from his bald pate to join those that oozed from the pores of his rubicund cheeks, the merry old crow. "'You had good times, old man,' said I, rather familiarly, joining him in his strange laughter. "'Aye, that had we,' he responded." Why, at one Easter in fourteen eighty six we had Henry the Seventh drop in here on his way to Lincoln? The deuce said i the fact he said reproachfully, and served up for him and his following twelve great pikes, twelve great TENCHERS, and twelve salmons, a dish meat for a king. YE FOUR AND TWENTY BLACKBIRDS BAKED IN YE PIE, WHICH, WHEN YE PIE WAS OPENED, YE BIRDS BEGAN TO SING, WERE NOT IN IT. THOU WOULDST KNOW OF THE BIRDS WE HAVE, OR HAD. WELL, IN THE GOOD OLD DAYS WE HAD bitterns AND HERONS UPON OUR TABLES, RUFFS AND REEVES, PLOVERS GREY AND PLOVERS GOLDEN, "'Yarwhelps, snipes in thousands, "'and wild duck and grey geese galore. "'But I am no great nature man,' "'said he, pulling out Kingsley's hairywood. "'But here be one who is. "'I will read to thee a moment.' "'And thus read he. "'I tell you, sire, I have seen wild fowl alone in that island, enough to feed them all the year round. I was there in moulting time, and saw them take in, one day, one hundred, one two hundred, and once, as I am a belted knight, a thousand duck out of a single mere. No wonder the breed hath lessened, he put in, there is a wood there with herons sprawling about the treetops. I did not think there were so many in the world, and fish for Lent and Fridays in every puddle, and leet, pike and perch, roach and eels on every old wife's table, while the knights think scorn of anything worse than smelt and burbot. thy mouth waters added the monk your descriptions of what has been in ages gone by in broadland when water spread where rushes now grow into solid land and spreading acres of bog gave way to marshlands bitterns gave way to sleek lowing kine and sedges vanished before the corn moved one greatly For thy comfort, said he, read Lubbock's Fauna of Norfolk. For thy delectation, Stevenson's Birds of Norfolk. Please change the subject, I begged him, for I am a naturalist who loves birds more than beeves and curlews more than corn. I stooped to tie up a vagrant shoelace and, RISING AGAIN QUICKLY, FOUND MY FRIEND HAD VANISHED. IF ON THE MARSHES, I COULD NOT DISCERN HIM. IF INTO THIN AIR, I COULD NOT SAY. BUT I WAS ALONE. SURELY I HAD BEEN DREAMING, PERHAPS WALL-GATHERING. WHO KNOWS? I AM ALONE AGAIN. No great call for comment marked my passage downstream from my clean insectless open mooring place midway between mill and bridge. The wind, what little there was of it, was not unfriendly, but I thrust out the oars and so jogged along. I repassed a small but dense clump of rushes, but as I came to it. I noted the whirligig flight of many swallows, mostly young birds, above, around, about it. They seemed to me like youngsters bed romping before getting seriously downstairs for the day's breakfast and lessons. Bonny creatures, snip-snapping at the tinier bedfellows of the night, gnats and midges. I saw the swallows last night, as it were, making and going to their beds. And no wonder, for a good rush-bottom chair to sleep on is far more pleasant to roost in than in the old family nest with its swarming ticks and fleas. How do I know this? Well, I have, when the chickies were out of bed, put my hand into it and drawn it back with many parasites upon it. Experientia docet stultos, and you yourself won't deny it. It is good to have these little birdies around one in solitary places. Far better to be roosting, caged amongst them, as it were, than to imprison one for the beauty of its song, thus punishing it for its merits. What a cheerio does the little sedge-warbler give one when, in the dead of night, he wakes to tune his harp-strings, repeating it if you hull a bit of mud into the water, forefronting him to disturb his nap again. And often, when all the world should be sleeping, a wee piping cry now and again disturbs the stillness one little fluttering bird like a child in a dream of pain has chirped and started up then nestled down again oh a child and a bird as they sink to rest are as like as any twain Oh. Broadland, how beautiful thou art! Thy very feathered tenants are thy angels! And heaven seems not afar off in the cool, sweet, quiet nights of summer, when the birds pipe and prattle to you from the fullness of their little hearts. Turn the panorama on, John, but you must bear with me a little, for I am telling the story. Pass two anglers, their old stages anyone may tell. You see it in their rods, in the way they cast angle. They are out early, and lo, one plays with consummate skill, a lolloping bream. You can tell it by the aprons across their laps, and their quiet, business like demeanour. Experientia Doset do, John, drop those outlandish phrases. Very well, they slip out like small eels from between unprofessional fingers. Shot by a couple of cameras, but the wounds are not painful. Hello, my old Yankee hat has gone overboard unnoticed, and maybe a mile astern. "'but there are two other handsome old shapes in the kit bag, "'and perhaps I can arrange a salvage job. "'One other mishap. "'I had left my tin box with the little brass lamp somewhere, "'where I knew not, "'and that accounts for my pocket full of candles at Stalham. "'But, presto, it comes back to Yarmouth again by post.' with a most artistically finished black-and-white cartoon, unsigned, which sketch represents John Little writing up his log by the aid of a box of matches. Thanks, kind friend at Horning. After losing my hat, I prefer to rig up a sort of burnous with the towel, lined with two cool lily pads. This queer headdress made some passing yacht folk look at me, doubting. I can't help their troubles, I have my own. Past we quaint old farmhouse on one side the river, its chum, the pump mill, on the other. What a picture they would have made if together. One of those charming sloop riggers, the Miranda, keeps tacking in front of me. Life, tack upon tack, just as short as this. She did it so. Tack, 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 tack. And so beautifully and patiently that I had not the heart to try and show the yarwhelps paces. She tacks rather poorly, but she's a beggar when I put the oars a-going to help her, seems to cock her tail, and say to him, Now then, clear out of the road, and just look at the skipper, and then at me. Pottaheim ahead. Hello, the yawwhelp's got the bit again, and off we go till the next bend fooling us "'She slackens her paces. "'Ship ahoy!' "'It was the call of a friend "'who was overhauling me in the cigarette, "'a dainty little yacht, "'and presently she and the Yarwhelp "'went the last lap together, "'the former's big white wing half-folded "'to keep step, "'to cheer up its plebeian cousin.' And so, in triumph, we reached the grand little ancient stone bridge together, when the Yarwhelp's ugly brown wing was folded, and she slipped under, to be paddled to a quiet mooring-place. Chapter 14 At Pleasant Potter In running waters, praise— Praise in the bubbling brook that laughs between green rushy banks and meadows' golden sheen. Praise in the streams on rushing, blithe and free, in mighty rivers sweeping to the sea. Praise in the little waves laughing in their glee, dancing, dancing merrily, full of ecstasy. By John Oxenham. I was struck on my peregrinations with the remarkably cleanly unlittered surface that characterised the waterways. Empty tins, papers, refuse were conspicuously absent. Empty bottles were the predominant flotsam. The reeds, no doubt, hid many and much. But why are bottles invariably corked before hulling them in? I might as well ask why it is that a woman who throws herself overboard always takes off her hat before the act, sticking her hatpin through it. The waters hold the secret. My present impressions of Potterham are vastly different from those when years long gone by, that old houseboat, the idler, of some fame, was an innovation, a pioneer, and a landmark. When what is now a Yarmouthian, Henley, Balterslock, and Richmond all in one, but in a smaller degree, was but an eel man's outpost. It was almost as bare then as today is Burney Arms, come Yarmouth. The railway in eighteen seventy-six. Opened up the jungle. The earlier yachts folk took their pleasures then more seriously, and if Norwich made Wroxham, Yarmouth made Potter, and Yarmouth is proud of it. Her spies, like those in Canaan, came back saying they had seen the sons of Anak, who be strong that dwell in the land. Marshmen were they and that the land floweth with milk and honey. Numbers chapter 13 Alas, the latter attractions are as hard literally to obtain today in Broadland as the Israelites found them in the wilderness. Bungalows on the northern bank are a marked feature of potter. The squatters, who usually own a handy dinghy, have added plot to plot of raw marshland rondage, filling it, raising it, fencing it with care, and in most cases piling the frontage, and building thereon choice little summer resorts nestling amidst stunted willows, not so dank and so oppressively overshadowing as those at Roxham, which shut in dignity and shut out air. Whilst brilliant nasturtiums, painted luxuriantly by the sun, climb up trellises, and other flowers throw in their varied charms delightfully. The bungalows themselves are gay and exceedingly tasty in appearance, neat usually, modest always, and altogether more lovable than Roxham's waterside Mayfair, Bungalow Avenue the one is tenanted at weekends and holiday times by folk who bask, the other scintillates with the swagger of imperialistic nabobbery. I say these things with all kindness, for you know I try to be friendly as well as honest. At Potter you sniff in the ozone from the not-far-away sea. At Roxham, fresh marshland air filters in through leafy ways. In one, you see the faraway smoke trail of a steamer. At Roxham, you cannot seem to forget the not-over-distant factory shafts. The name of Applegate, seemingly coexistent with the birth and rise of Potterham, still stares the whole world in the face, like Longfellow's, VILLAGE BLACKSMITH. As I half-doze, I recall old George Applegate again, chatting over the eel-hut fire, or watching his eel-sets, and for the approach of Yacht and wherry, his pleasant voice with a natty sort of in it, telling me of early days in Broadland. For in the early nineties I used to drift the old houseboat, moorhen the first to kendall dyke and stake hard by him his ancient craft still lies in literal rags and tatters not far distant from boning's habitat i delighted after nightfall in drawing into the good man's hut to talk by the firelight a willing scholar at old george's feet I was made most welcome by a friend who owns one of Potter's comfortable bungalows, and that night I slept in a civilised bed. But the habits of the mohawk compelled me to roll between the upper blankets, and then, after a refreshing breakfast, I trained to Yarmouth, myself parting with the host and his fair daughter with a pleasant memory. After a few hours spent at home, and with a fresh supply of necessaries, I went back to Potter on Saturday noon, put the Yarwhelps wing up, and made for Hickling, to my mind the wildest and most characteristic of the broads, fuller of wildlife and freedom than any and to it the rarest of our broadland nesting birds resort. We glided through the peaceful sounds, where aforetime I have staked down to capture ruds and roaches, and listened at night to join in, praise with the dancing wavelets in their glee, as the north wind tripped them merrily, and when the southerly zephyrs accompanied them back again. The coot awoke me in the morning by his querulous music, and the sedge-birds joined in with less jarring notes, accompanied by the tinkling cymbals of the bearded tits. How grown up are the bays and corners! I steered the craft towards the old meadow dyke for Horsey, but the baggage proved restive. What ailed her? I couldn't guide her, swing the tiller as I might. She just shaved a pile, grating her side along it, the boom catching awkwardly, as did the sail as wickedly along its length. You little female canine, I called the yarwhelp, but it was hardly her fault, for I found we had been scraping over the thick mossy waterweed that grew to the very surface. I half-apologised to her, and censured my pettiness. Up the dyke she ambled, until the turnings baffled her, and I took to the paddle. It was a stuffy valley, the heat unpleasant, which the all-too-sheltering verdure intensified. I hadn't got far before the voice of Jim Vincent Broadland keeper and watcher hailed me, and our boats touched noses as their skippers exchanged greetings. "'I've been looking for you,' says ex-sapper Jim, broadland bird expert, counter of reed pheasants' nests, protector-in-chief of this bird sanctuary, where harriers now nest again and bitterns have reopened their nurseries.' and ruffs and reeves now dare to come on their honeymoon. Jim's sporting gun punt boasts the roundest deck I ever saw, but she's a ripper for making the best use of every inch of sail, which is a sprit sail rare on these waters. You'd better go back to the eel hut. Dad wants you to have a yarn with him. Come this way tomorrow. So I let Horsey go a bit, and turned back to join a very old friend, Robert Vincent, the doyen of present-day Broadman. hale, hearty, jocund as a boy, smart as Broadman go, for lo, I found him with a spanking white collar on, one of the sort you can wash, starch and iron, as it were, in a bucket of water.' End of section seven.